I'm Naomi Kilberth, Christian clinical herbalist, owner of Laurel Tree Wellness, and host of the Family Herbalism Podcast. Here on the show, I bring to you loads of helpful information and practical tips to help you on your natural health journey. We cover common and unique symptom pictures, underlying tissue states and the stories that lead to them, and so many tools that promote and restore wellness, not the least of which is plants. Thank you for joining us today. May you be blessed by the conversation and leave with hope and inspiration. Are you ready? Let's begin. Welcome back to the Family Herbalism Podcast. You guys know, probably if you've been around for a little while, that I've done some episodes on handling viral illnesses like COVID. I even did one on smallpox, and I offered an episode on viral prevention and supporting your immune system. But today I'm going to be focusing on a very specific aspect of illness that gets a lot of people feeling fidgety, and that's fevers. So I think it's important to talk about fevers because we're human beings and it's very likely that we're going to experience them a few times over the course of our lives. I also think it's important because they're generally misunderstood and when something is misunderstood, it's often mistreated. And again, I'm speaking from personal experience here. I am a mother of four children and this has provided me with many opportunities to learn how the body works. Our family has personally faced a number of viral infections, but we've also faced Lyme disease, and we also have a daughter who has celiac disease, and this began with a lot of fevers early on in her life. And so on numerous occasions, we have faced temperatures of even 105 degrees, and I know that feeling of fear that comes with those fevers, but also uh, having a basic knowledge of what's happening and a pantry full of herbs We've never had anything serious happen as a result. So what I share with you is partly from professional experience, but also partly from personal experience. And I would say probably the majority of what I have shared, I have actually experienced personally and these herbs I've worked with personally and had really good results with them. There's actually one particular time that I wanted to share about when one of my kids was just a toddler. She was probably two and so I would have been in my mid-20s and she kept developing these strange fevers with no other symptoms and during one of them I put her to bed and she ended up underneath a blanket and it was a warm summer day and by the time that she woke up her temperature had hit 105. This was the first time I'd ever had a child hit 105 and I totally panicked. I gave her Tylenol and I put her in a cold bath which was of course quite a shock to her, but her temperature did drop. There were instances though where her temperature did not drop with over-the-counter meds. And instead I worked with yarrow tincture and it worked every single time. And eventually those fevers stopped. And if you've been following my podcast for a while, you probably know more of that story and how it turned out that she had some immune and digestive dysregulation. And the fevers were simply a sign of that and we just didn't know it yet. I say all this because I want you to know that I won't suggest anything that I wouldn't do myself, and I know how uncomfortable it is to have a child or other loved one who is ill. You want to do anything you can for them, and sometimes doing what their body really needs feels like not doing anything at all. Sometimes the best thing you can do is sit on your hands. At one point in time, I was training with a home birth midwife, 
And I remember in the course of training that there was a quote that was shared by a more experienced herbalist and midwife who said that you can tell the, the more skilled and more experienced midwives apart from the less experienced ones, the more experienced they are, the less they actually do because they, they know that the body will do its thing in its own way and very often you don't need to interfere at all. My earliest education around handling fevers as a parent was inspired by the book called How to Raise a Healthy Child in Spite of Your Doctor, which was written by a pediatrician whose name is Roberts Mendelssohn. And yes, the title is a bit tongue-in-cheek, but the book was very encouraging and I do still recommend it. One of the reasons I feel that fevers can be scary is that we don't understand what's happening or what might happen. We hear stories about seizures and brain damage and in an effort to prevent them, get overly involved in trying to help the body when it knows very well how to handle a fever. Thank you very much. So today I wanna to share with you some background information on how amazing the body is. And of course I will share some herbs, but these herbs are not gonna do what you may think they are. Remember that from a holistic perspective, we don't want to force the body to do anything. We want to help the body to do its job more easily. Let's start with a picture of the thermoregulatory system, which is a fancy name for the part of the body that regulates core body temperature. This organ system includes the brain with the hypothalamus, pituitary, thyroid, and parathyroid, which are all different organelles that have very specific functions, but each of them are involved in regulation of the temperature in the body. But the thermoregulatory system also includes the sweat glands, skin, and blood. Normally, this system keeps your body at an average temperature of around 98.6 degrees. But if the immune system detects pathogens that have a chemical on board called pyrogens, or if it releases pyrogens as a result of detecting pathogens, these chemical messengers tell the hypothalamus in the brain that it's time to raise the temperature. It's like the thermostat in the body. Pyrogen comes from the same word origin as pyrotechnics, by the way. It causes the proverbial fire to build in the body. Pathogens that can trigger the release of pyrogens include viruses, bacteria, fungi, toxins, and even medications. It's important to know that normal body temperature is not fixed. This by itself can cause some people to feel alarmed because they will check their temperature and it says 99.8 degrees and they feel that they have a fever, but really they've just been very active and it's later in the day and so their body temperature has been going up. Uh, body temperature can vary from person to person, especially in adults who have varying activity levels of their metabolism. So someone who has underactive metabolism or an underactive thyroid is naturally going to have a lower body temperature until that is addressed. And so being overheated can also cause higher temperatures that are unrelated to a pathogen. And these will usually go away within an hour or two. 
So you can see there's a lot of different reasons why your temperature might not be exactly 98.6 degrees or your child's temperature might not be 98.6 degrees. Uh, it is generally accepted, however, that an oral temperature above 100.4 or armpit temperature of 99.4 is a fever, which means that even a temperature of 100 degrees in the mouth is not technically a fever. It could mean that a fever is coming, or it could mean the person has been very active or working outside, or their metabolism is working like a racehorse today. But at that point that it becomes 100.4, that's when we start looking at, you know, how high is this fever and how do we respond to this illness? How do we figure out what kind of illness it is? One question I hear, which is, usually subjectively described is, what is a high fever? So I often hear people say, oh, my child is a high fever and it's 103 or 104. So let's talk numbers here. And then later on in the podcast, I'm going to completely undermine the whole numbers thing, but you'll, you'll see what I mean when we get there. At this point in time, what pediatricians generally accept as a standard guideline is that fevers of anywhere between 100 and 104 are normal for most people. 100 to 102 is considered low or low grade. 103 to 104 is a healthy fever. And they're not technically high until they hit 105, if they hit 105. And there are very few reasons why a temperature below 105 would be considered dangerous. We'll talk about this as well, but examples would include if you are pregnant or if it's a young baby that has a fever or you have had the fever for several days. These would be indications at which point you'd want to consider bringing the fever down. Another story that I hear is that if the fever is not going down with medications, that it's more likely to be dangerous. And I used to believe that too, but it turns out that's an unfounded idea. Whether the fever goes down or not does not help us to know what the cause of the fever is. A very low fever can be caused by a serious illness, and a high fever can be caused by a simple virus that the body will easily throw off. So we can't use the response to medication as an indicator of what is going on. If the temperature gets over 106, and this is very rare, it's more likely to cause changes in consciousness and signs of dehydration, possibly even seizures. However, studies have shown that even in these cases, long-term damage is unlikely. Febrile seizures, which are caused during a fever, are scary, but are not likely to hurt a person. Doctors generally agree that long-term brain damage is unlikely to occur unless a temperature goes over a whopping 107.6 degrees. This is extremely rare. Long-term negative effects in other organs of the body are unlikely to occur unless the fever has been prolonged. And while a concrete number on how many days that means exactly is more difficult to find, it seems most agree that a fever of two to five days is considered normal. Yes, I'm going to help you to see the danger signs and give you tools to help yourself or a loved one if they develop a fever. But I do hope that at this point you can see that the line in the sand that we typically draw for fevers is actually very conservative. 
Most people I know will treat a fever of 102 with Tylenol. But if you're looking at the risks, in most cases, we can wait until the temperature hits 105 or they have had it for five to six days without fear of potential problems. And here's another fact that is important to remember. When the threat diminishes, when the immune system has got the pathogen under control, the fever will go away on its own. You will not have a fever forever if you don't use fever reducers. Your body is intelligent. Your hypothalamus has not lost control of the thermostat. It's actually quite in charge. Most fevers do not go above 104, and rarely do they go above 105. Not to say that it doesn't happen, but if you let the body be, it will control the temperature just fine. If the fever gets to 103 or 104, you can treat it with medication if it makes you feel more comfortable, and sometimes you just need a break. I understand that but it's still not necessary in most cases, and reducing a fever can present its own set of problems, which I'll talk about in a second. Plus, fever-reducing medications often don't actually break a fever, but only reduce it by two to three degrees for a few hours, and so you'll have to keep using it. What's really scary is that when the fever is artificially reduced, it's like putting the immune system in handcuffs and still expecting it to fight for you. Fevers are part of the immune system that is teaching you and your children how to respond to pathogens. They are good. Even in adulthood, fevers are an integral part of a healthy immune response. A study published in the Journal of the American Medical Association in 2019 determined that fevers change the proteins on the surface of lymphocytes. These are the white blood cells whose job it is, is to remember the pathogens and mark them for destruction should they reappear. So you fought off the illness, a few months later, it comes back again, and these lymphocytes say, hey, stop right there, you don't go any further. Well, it does that using these proteins on their surface. And so when the fever changes their proteins, it's like they can suddenly pick up the signal from the invader and they hone in on it very quickly. When the fever is reduced, this tuning process of the lymphocytes is reduced, which means they have a harder time finding the source of the infection and it takes longer to eliminate it. So this is what is meant when it's said that using fever reducers prolongs the length of the illness. It's because it's literally making these white blood cells blind, so they can't tell where the infection is. Meanwhile, the pathogen is multiplying without hindrance because they love the cooler temperature. They're saying, oh, thank you. Now we can go make babies. So when the fever comes back after a few hours, the multiplying pathogens and the arrested immune response are now a problem, and you may actually feel worse than you did before. The fever is likely to last longer or for more days because we keep promoting the growth of new pathogens to kill off and making it more difficult for the body to do its job. Now I will say if you get to 105 degrees and you can't bring your temperature down, it is appropriate to seek medical care. If you're pregnant, the upper limit is actually only 101. And for children under three, the upper, the upper limit for caring for them at home without guidance is usually 103. And if they're between zero and three months, it's anything over 100. A baby having a fever does not necessarily represent anything serious. 
but it's possible to be something other than a virus. So any fever at all at that age should be ad addressed by a doctor. Our youngest was born in a heat wave in March and because her thermoregulatory system was so confused by this change of environment outside the uterus and then having it be so hot out, we couldn't keep anything more than a diaper on her for days without causing her temperature to go over 100. But by the time she was a week old, her temperature balanced out and we could finally put clothes on her. But I do remember being concerned about that and at the same time fascinated to learn how fevers and, new and newborns can be caused by something as simple as inexperience in regulating their own temperature. So if you do have a baby with a fever, get it checked out, but know that it's often nothing terribly serious. One of the biggest indicators of a healthy fever is the behavior of the person who is sick. If they're listless, confused, or hallucinating, get help. If they're sleeping a ton, that's okay, as long as when they are awake, they're communicating clearly and acting somewhat normal. If your kid has a fever and you have to convince them to rest because all they want to do is get down and play, they're totally fine and you can leave them alone. This is where the number gets kind of funny because the actual temperature is simply a sign. It's not like as soon as they hit 100, 108 degrees, they go from sick to brain damage. Each person's body handles illness differently and you will see the change in behavior before it becomes dangerous. So trust your child. If they're acting sick but interacting with people, they're okay. If they start acting weird, it's time to get help, regardless of what the number says. Understanding that the fever is integral to a healthy and effective immune response now makes sense when we say that our job is to support the fever. Whatever we do, we want to make sure we're not interrupting its work and that we're making the job as easy as possible to shorten the length of the illness and make future illnesses less potentially serious. Depending on the reason for the fever, the approach you use may be different. So you may be using more herbs or vitamins that are specific to a bacterial or a viral infection. But as far as the fever goes specifically, we wanna make sure number one, that we're not forcing the temperature to go down. We want it to go down when the hypothalamus gets the message that the invaders have been arrested or eliminated. So we're gonna look at ways we can support its work and bring the infection to a close much faster. The first step is to keep hydrated. It's very easy to lose the desire to drink when you're sick because cool drinks can feel uncomfortable and other symptoms can distract us. So we just don't really feel motivated. But even if you're relying on tea or broth, which is often warmer and more comfortable to drink, it's important to keep fluids going in. The higher temperature of the fever can cause fluids to be evaporated more quickly, and the loss of fluid will slow down the elimination of pathogens. If a person has become dehydrated at home, typically they're taken into the urgent care center and given an IV. But at home, there is actually a way to get fluids into the bloodstream more quickly, and this is with a rehydration formula that you simply mix together in a mason jar or a tall glass. And there are recipes for these all over the internet, but basically you're creating a formula or a recipe that has various electrolytes using ingredients you have at home. So it will have lemon juice, a little honey, a little baking soda, maybe a little apple cider vinegar, 
a little salt. And so you mix these together with the water in a small proportion and using a formula or using a recipe can be helpful in making sure that it tastes a, a little better maybe. Um, it's not really meant to be enjoyed, but it can often save a person from having to take a trip into urgent care. And I find oftentimes if a person is feeling low energy because they're dehydrated, whether they have a fever or not, drinking this rehydration formula often helps them to feel more energized and a little bit more present and more comfortable. Number two is reduce your food consumption. The old saying says to feed the cold and starve the fever. Slowing down food intake does two things. First, it enables the nervous system to switch from parasympathetic to sympathetic function. Parasympathetic is the part of our nervous system that we use to rest and digest our food, rest and digest. But the sympathetic function is what we need when we are fighting something, including a virus. So when we eat food, we're telling our body, oh, you can't go into sympathetic fight and defend mode. You have to digest this food. So we want to make sure we're supporting the immune system by keeping food to a minimum. But second, it also allows blood flow to leave the core and head for the surface of the body where it can be cooled off. If you have just eaten a big meal, now all your blood flow is going to start concentrating in your core, which is going to heat you up from the inside. And so you may not actually want to do that. We want to encourage blood flow and get it moving toward the outside where it can cool off. If you're an adult, it may be easier for you to fast than for a child to. But if the child has a low appetite, let them reduce their intake. Feed them soups and gentle, easy to digest foods like oatmeal, rice, chicken, cooked or softened vegetables and fruit, but only as much as they desire. Soups are actually really great because the ingredients are already partially broken down and they are warm. So the age old tradition of eating chicken noodle soup isn't such a bad idea if you can handle the gluten. So the nervous system in this case won't be as distracted by having to digest this food if it's already in soup form or re redirect blood flow to keep your core warm. Adding mushrooms are a great way to add nutritional and immune supporting benefits as well. And you can add other spices or herbs that that might be helpful in this case, which is supportive of overall health. If you or the other person who is actually sick are desiring something cold, it's important to keep that to a minimum if at all possible. But one really cool recipe you can try is just making a simple herbal popsicle or ice cubes. If you have a tray made up ahead of time or you make up a tray at the beginning of the illness, you can make something like rose hips or lemon balm tea and then freeze it into ice cubes or popsicle trays to suck on as desired. Number three is to keep the room at a moderate temperature, which is usually between 68 and 72 degrees, and to wear loose, comfortable clothing. If it's warmer weather out, or if you are warm enough inside, uh, keeping the windows open is really great to promote airflow and definitely avoiding overbundling with blankets. Airflow will help the body to keep the fever at a reasonable and effective temperature. So you still have the fever, but you're not um, promoting a higher than needed temperature. Everything else that we do from a natural perspective has to do with keeping the pores open, the pores in the skin. 
in a fever, the person may develop chills and goosebumps. This is because their body is stimulating contraction of the muscles in the skin to generate and hold on to their core heat. This is the pores closing and not allowing heat to escape. We wanna help the body keep the pores open. It doesn't stop the fever, but allows for easier moderation of the temperature. I'll be talking about two different kinds of herbs that we use for this, but with each of the following tools, that's what you're gonna see, keeping the skin open. So before the herbs, here's a couple of tools you can use. Number one, a cool shower or bath will drop the body temperature, which is helpful if it's quite high, but then the pores will close to try to conserve heat. A warm shower, on the other hand, will relax the pores so the body can sweat and release heat. Just don't make the water too hot or the temperature may rise. Warm is really the temperature that you're going for, and this is warm to the person who has a fever. An alternative to a shower is a cool washcloth on the forehead and neck that will help to absorb some of the heat. Sponging with apple cider vinegar, while it doesn't smell great, can help because the acid draws out the heat and replenishes electrolytes lost at the same time. If you don't want to sponge with it, that's okay. You can put a cup of it in the bathtub or you can add a tablespoon to your water with honey, as in the rehydration formula. When it comes to herbs, it's important that we remember there are febrifuge herbs or herbs that have a refrigerant action and these could potentially stop a fever in its tracks, but we don't want to do that. Even if we're using herbs, it's still not in the best interest of the body. They, these are better to use when the fever is caused by overheating, such as being out too long on a hot day. In the case of a fever caused by a pathogen, it's more appropriate to work with diaphoretics. A diaphoretic herb is one that opens the pores and can induce sweating. Some of them are cooling, as you'll see, but not always, and both have their places. Again, you may use additional herbs while sick, such as antiviral or antibacterial herbs, but right now I'm talking specifically about those that impact the temperature. There are two types of diaphoretics, stimulating and relaxing, and we use each of them in turn. Earlier in the fever, a person often starts feeling really cold, even though their temperature is not that high. The reason is because they haven't adjusted to the new thermostat setting. The hypothalamus gets the message that some invader is on the prowl and turns up the thermostat. It says, this is your new baseline until further notice. So all of a sudden, you find yourself under the baseline temperature and you feel cold. You have pale skin, maybe your energy is gone. This is when you start working with stimulating diaphoretics. These are hot, spicy, or pungent, warming herbs that promote circulation and activity in the body. They support increased metabolism and basically say, okay, you want heat? I'll give you heat. And now your body temperature rises to meet the requirement of the new thermostat setting. At the same time, because it's still a diaphoretic, your pores stay open so when the heat gets to the right temperature, it starts escaping through the pores. If you have a wood stove, you understand the analogy that this is like opening the windows when the wood stove starts roaring. You want it hot, but not too hot. This is also why it's important not to worry if you start to treat your temperature and then it goes up even more. You're not causing anything bad to happen. You're simply helping the fever along. It's still going to max out when it reaches that new baseline, whatever it is, so it's not like the herbs are gonna make the fever go out of control. 
Stimulating diaphoretics include herbs like ginger, garlic, cinnamon, clove, cayenne, black pepper, yarrow, sage, and feverfew. I'll talk about how you can use these in a moment. First, what happens when your core temperature gets to the appropriate level as dictated by your hypothalamus? First, you let the body do its thing. This might take a day or two, but at some point you'll see a shift. Now the skin is hot and dry, maybe flushed. The muscles are tense and achy. They're not sleeping, they're cranky. They're trying to communicate to their body that that's enough, they're done with this virus thing. This is when you introduce relaxing diaphoretics. You're still not forcing the temperature to change, but you're shifting the energetics of the circulation and messages sent by the nerves. Relaxing diaphoretics are often cooling and they relax the blood vessels so that the blood flow slows down a bit and can travel more freely around the body, all while keeping the windows open. Relaxing diaphoretics include herbs that are bitter and acrid, like boneset, lobelia, blue vervain, yarrow, peppermint, elderflower, rose hips, basil, catnip, echinacea, lemon balm, skullcap, chamomile, and tulsi. There's a lot to choose from. Now, how do you take these? If you're trying to make the most use of the diaphoretic sweat-inducing properties, tea is best. A hot tea will often induce sweating with much, much more ease than a tincture. However, I often prefer the convenience of tinctures and find they often work really well. So having both on hand as options, especially for children who may not drink tea or for adults who don't enjoy it, this can be really helpful. The exception for this is if the fever is caused by overheating in the summer. In this case, a hot tea is not a good idea. The tea should be iced instead or a tincture used. Thankfully, even in the case of a pathogenic fever, it doesn't take large doses to get the effect you need. A few sips of tea every once in a while can make all the difference. And some teas like blue vervain are so bitter, you probably won't be able to stomach more than a sip or two, but they do work. When using tinctures, I like to do three to five drops every 30 to 60 minutes until the person starts sweating or the temperature shifts. When I've addressed fevers in this way, even bacterial fevers, which can be very stubborn, I've seen temperatures drop from potentially dangerous heights very quickly, even when the same person in the same illness was not responding to over-the-counter fever-reducing medications. Those relaxing diaphoretics can drop fevers within an hour, and it will continue to drop to a more comfortable level until the body is ready to let it go back to normal. So if you have ginger and basil in your pantry or any of the other herbs I mentioned, you can easily make yourself a cup of tea by putting near boiling water in a mug with a spoonful of your chosen herb, let it brew for several minutes, strain it, and sip. The two tinctures I like to keep on hand for this purpose are yarrow and catnip. I feel they both work really well. Uh, they're pretty universal and you can use them for other things, but that's just my preference. If you would like to be able to address fevers at home, but you still feel concerned that you won't know what safe limits are or how to respond when you're worried, you may be interested in signing up for text, text support with me. I'll provide the link in the show notes, but basically for $33, you can text or email me six times for six different concerns, such as what to do about a fever using supplies you have on hand. And then I'll respond to you as soon as possible often before you would get a return call from the doctor's office. 
You can learn more about this by going to www.laureltreewellnessllc.com and clicking the consultations tab. The text support option is right at the bottom of the page. I hope that this episode has encouraged you and helped you to feel more ready to face fevers with confidence. If you found it helpful, I would encourage you to share it with someone you know who would benefit. And I also appreciate it if you would leave a review on the podcast app. Thank you so much for your continued support and listening in. I appreciate you being here. May you have a wonderful week. See you then. The Family Herbalism Podcast is created for educational purposes only. You have the right and responsibility to make all health-related decisions for your own life. If you experience a medical emergency, please contact appropriate medical providers. To receive herbalist support, please visit www.laureltreewellnessllc.com. If you enjoy this podcast and find it helpful, please share it with your friends and family and leave a review. Thank you for listening.